Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Vicky Price. Vicky is Chief Economic Advisor and a board member at the Center for Economics and Business Research. She was previously Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting, Director General for Economics at the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, and Joint Head of the UK Government Economic Service. Before that, she was partner at the accounting and consulting firm KPMG after senior economic positions in banking and the oil sector. She has held a number of academic posts and is a fellow and council member of the UK Academy of Social Sciences, a fellow of the Society of Professional Economists and a companion of the British Academy of Management. Her latest book, Women Versus Capitalism, was published by Hearst in November of 2019. She is a frequent contributor to media podcasts and debates on the economy and on the economic rationale for gender equality. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about the recent House of Lords report, which is calling for Bank of England reform after inflation failures. Vicky shares her views and then talks more broadly about the UK and global economy and also what's ahead in 2024. We also managed to talk a little bit about crypto and Bitcoin in particular. I hope you enjoyed this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Well, Vicky, welcome back. It's great to have you on the show again. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me to reappear. And we're talking about the recent House of Lords report, which is calling for the Bank of England or for Bank of England reform after inflation failures. And I'm going to quote from the Financial Times, the Lords Economic Affairs Committee said Bank of England policymakers were too reluctant to challenge conventional wisdom and overly reliant on inadequate forecasting models when inflation was brewing in 2020 and 2021. At the time, the Bank of England and other major central banks were slow to raise interest rates because they believed the jump in inflation triggered by the pandemic and the energy crisis would be transitory. And I know we've talked about this a few times on the podcast. I was wondering, Vicky, whether you could share your thoughts on this and why were the forecasting models supposedly inadequate? It's a really interesting question. And of course, one has to look at the details of what the House of Lords is thinking about the Bank of England. But as I think it's rightly pointed out, it's not just the Bank of England, but it's lots of other central banks that did more or less the same thing as the Bank of England, assuming therefore that quite a lot of the increase that we saw in inflation at the end of the COVID period was transitory. And I think it was perfectly sensible to think that at the time. And there are a number of reasons for that. Because we had practically deflation at the time of COVID when we had the lockdowns. When you remember there was a period when oil prices were negative. Mm. If I remember sometime in July 2020, where there were minus $37 a barrel, which basically meant that producers were paying tankers to just keep that oil 
at some point the price is bound to go up but just don't deliver it to anybody for the time being because actually nobody wanted it anyway that of course has had huge impacts because that's just one small example on all sorts of other commodities where of course you know things just stopped mines closed etc etc so you didn't have the production happening in loads of industries because nobody wanted it and of course emissions went down very significantly so we were in a in a period when really in terms of the economy nothing much was moving except the essentials such as hospitals and possibly you know, the old drivers and a lot of delivery of course that was happening through amazon and and so on because people were locked down and had to do something and a lot of it purchases in the sense of netflix and and so on but in reality very little production was taking place and very little demand for actual goods and nobody was going anywhere nobody was using their cars and of course when the restrictions started easing we saw manufacturing sort of start to recover so there was a little bit going on there but then as it did everything was in the wrong place so things had when been produced in china that you needed as inputs to whatever you want in your car industry here for example so there were amazing supply chain problems there were cargoes that were in the wrong place there was nobody in fact to empty you know ships that were arriving with all sorts of goods and there was no one to to even man the cranes that were required for example in ports there were no drivers remember we had this huge shortage of of drivers to to bring one thing to an, mm. in somewhere else and and of course freight costs went up hugely so if you look at all that and and of course there were also shortages of food in various places because there wasn't the transport to take whatever was produced from one place to another. So it all led to unbalanced production and demand outstripping supply for a while, which of course led to prices rising quite significantly and energy prices rose too because suddenly, you know, from the very lows that they were in before, they just shot up mm. because suddenly this oil was needed to power whatever it is that we wanted to do or any other energy that we use was also required to produce the goods that manufacturing wanted to do or, or to even sort of start refining oil and putting petrol in, in cars again. And so the reason why everyone thought it was tragic is because the expectation was that demand and supply would eventually sort themselves out. And indeed, I think, just think about the banks and what they were thinking at the time, all the forecasts that were there at, at the time, the forecasts at the end of 2021, were all suggesting that prices of commodities were either going to stabilize off a little bit, if not significantly, during 2022. Yes, of course, the targets of banks were not being met. I think the World Bank had put out a report saying, perhaps it was the IMF, that 80% of central banks were above their targets in inflation rates at that period. And that was before the war in Ukraine started. Mm -hmm. But the expectation was that because of prices perhaps stabilizing, you would end up with what most central bankers fear the most, which is not necessarily inflation, but deflation of the sort that Europe in particular had experienced during the Eurozone crisis. And it's one of the reasons why Europe still had negative interest rates until uh, the middle of 2022. So going back, looking at the banks, were they right to think it was transitory? Yes, but only up to a point, because unfortunately, as prices started going up, what you found is that in some countries like the UK, for all sorts of reasons that I'm very happy to go through, particularly a rise in inflation expectations, had meant that we were beginning to see wages becoming a little bit more entrenched in terms of increases than perhaps one would have liked at the time to ensure that inflation at least would be coming down fast. Mm-hmm. And so these so-called forecasting models not being adequate, can you talk about that? 
Yes, there's a lot of emphasis on that now. And you know that Ben Bernanke, the Nobel Prize winner, and of course he was running the Federal Reserve at the time of the financial crisis in the US, has been called in to look at the models of the Bank of England. Now, it is extraordinary that we had the Bank of England appear in front of the Treasury Select Committee saying our models are wrong, we didn't go back enough, and we got inflation wrong, and uh, and therefore perhaps interest rates may have to stay high for longer, and we're going to get someone to look at our models. We didn't look back enough. But what historical data would tell you in terms of constructing a model, you need history and you need to be able to see what happened in previous crises. But this was a very different crisis. It wasn't just one crisis in the UK. Mm -hmm. We had the financial crisis and we had the Brexit crisis, the vote in the referendum to leave the EU. Then we had COVID. Others said that too, but for us, it was on top of the other two, which hit, of course, the UK worse than others because of the importance of the financial sector. And then, of course, you had the war in Ukraine. So what old models will necessarily tell you, you just don't know. And the truth is that one needs to factor in all the political changes that are happening. One needs to factor in all the geopolitics, which are very, very different this time around than was the case before. One needs to factor in what's happening on the fiscal side, because during the the austerity period when we expanded money supply very significantly or tried to with quantitative easing to help the financial sector, there was austerity on the other side. So we had uh, very tough rules in the UK under the coalition government when George Osborne was chancellor. And you also had quite uh, tight fiscal policies during the Eurozone crisis. What we've had since COVID has been the opposite, a lot of fiscal expansion. And of course, quantitative easing to support that fiscal expansion. So you added to it. So did the banks take into account enough what was happening on the fiscal front? You could say that perhaps not, but this was the environment they found themselves in, which was very different to previous crises where the two sides, if you like, worked against each other. So having fiscal and monetary policy expansion at the same time, of course, probably accelerated this Mm -hmm increase in inflation that we have seen and maybe that should have been taken into account so a lot of judgment needs to go Mm -hmm. in and also how do you account for the fact that circumstances are very different it is really difficult i I remember we did talk about this the fed were also not doing anything in the summer of 2021 they they weren't raising rates and and again there are some arguments around well it was easier just to follow what the Fed were doing, which I know can be somewhat of a controversial statement. But yeah, none of the central banks were raising rates and everyone was following the same pattern. And of course, we've, we've seen what, what's followed after that. Well, absolutely. I mean, the Bank of England, of course, that raised rates back in whenever it was, did I say, in December 2021. I mean, at the time, what it had, it had started seeing was quite an increase in rates from a very, very low base. So, so I mean, you're right to say that things were beginning to happen. You know, it had moved from about 3% in August of 2021 to about 5.4% in December. So, yes, you're right, it was happening. And this, this was the first increase, but because it was considered to have been transitory, mm-hmm there was just a small increase in interest rates that took place then. And because it was still considered transitory, the US, as I said, did not raise rates until March 2022. Mm -hmm. But what we saw after was indeed a very substantial uptick in inflation that took place, which was not expected because, of course, energy prices went up very, very significantly as a result of the war in Ukraine. And the question was, should the banks then have done something pretty traumatic? like raise rates quite significantly and therefore stabilize things or should they have carried on as it did doing these incremental increases there is a lot of debates about whether 
raising rates quite a lot over a short period of time is a good way to do it, whether that is incredibly destabilizing. And it is arguable that the way it was done was perhaps what the banks thought would be least destabilizing, but still had to be done. And if they had raised rates very significantly, and just as things were going up, uh, and it has been in fact said by one embassy member, we would have ended up with suddenly a big recession. And that was before the war in Ukraine, mm. you know, coming up, especially if the expectations were that we would get back to some normality in terms of supply and demand. And that is really why the central banks were quite slow in doing anything about it. But once inflation took hold in a serious way, and again, it's worth remembering how it all moved and moved incredibly fast. And we perhaps should have thought again about whether the mix of fiscal and monetary policy was right, but that's certainly not the Bank of England's fault. Mm. I'm going to carry on reading from the FT, just for further context for, for listeners. So the Bank of England now regrets this, given it was forced to raise rates 14 times in an effort to quell inflation that reached a peak of 11% last year. It also questioned why the Monetary Policy Committee was not paying more attention to money supply growth during the period. The committee's report published on Monday recommended that Bank of England recruits should be drawn from a more varied intellectual background to foster a diversity of views and culture of challenge. The report said it was imperative that the MPC's membership contained people of sufficiently differing backgrounds and economic perspectives. I thought this was such an open and very transparent assessment. Again, Vicky, I'm really interested in your thoughts. And also, we know that women are underrepresented in economics and in financial services and at government at the decision-making levels. And that there is a general lack of diversity, which has an obvious impact. I'm just really keen to hear your thoughts, especially, you know, given how much you know about gender diversity and you yourself write about gender bias as well in your book, Women Versus Capitalism. That's an interesting point. Of course, there wasn't any uh, woman for quite some time as deputy governor until the recent appointment that took place from within the Bank of England. Uh, when uh, Minusha Fick, I think she left in 2016, 2017, and then it was just men who were deputy governors of the Bank of England. And of course, a number of them had come from the Treasury. Mm. <laughs> so when you talk about possible sort of group thing, yes, perhaps the backgrounds are sort of similar, but some come from the city. And if you look at the dependent members, they're pretty varied. So you have academics, some will come from the city. That, that has happened through the history, if you like, of the MPC. And what you find is that actually it tends to be the independent members who have differing views. Some haven't wanted interest rates to go up anything like as much and as fast in some ways. You know, we did discuss before, did they go up fast enough or did they go up too fast? So going up so fast, which is still the case, even if they only went up in small percentages each time, has still meant a lot of pain for businesses and also for individuals. And a lot of the uncertainty, of course, that was there was going to happen next. Do I really borrow now? Our interest rate is going to be going up further. Will, I, will my business survive? So we've ended up right now, of course, with insolvencies being at the highest level since the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. So that's a real, real problem. So there have been some who have been arguing against those increases because they think that the impact on the economy and possibly leading to deflation, if they had done it early and would have been 
a disaster, and even now have voted a number of times against the increases. But whether you know, looking further down is an issue in terms of the types of people you recruit, you know, possibly. But at the end of the day, the NBC makes a decision based on information that they receive. Some of it, of course, internal. So yes, maybe there is a point there. But a lot of it also comes from external surveys. It comes from the agents they have all around to understand what's happening in the economy. It comes from looking at other countries. It comes from looking at international issues. And I think the interesting thing is recently, of course, what we have seen is this very, very substantial drop in inflation that has taken mm. place all across the globe, really, because their earlier forecasts that inflation was going to come down and that these increases were transitory, if we had not put in there the impact of the war in Ukraine, and the fact that inflation expectations just shot up because the UK in particular had done very little until Prime Minister Liz Truss introduced an electricity price cap, which at least eased some of the concerns that people had, still very high, but not as high as would otherwise have been the case. You know, until then, we were having sort of some inflation forecasts which were incredibly high. But if you look at everything that happened, if you exclude the war in Ukraine, then I think their forecasts of it being transitory were quite correct because we've seen all the factors that I mentioned earlier, all the things that were still towards the end of 2021 causing inflation to creep up or go up, depending on how you're looking at it, perhaps, yes, above the targets, were things which were temporary. And we've seen freight rates come down to lower than they were pre-pandemic. You've seen food prices do something very similar. Oil prices that went up, of course, because of the war in Ukraine have come down quite a lot, even with the OPEC output constraints that have been reinforced this past week or so. What we've got now is oil prices, in fact, softening to really quite reasonable levels, so, you know, between 70 and $80 a barrel, which isn't very high. So, you know, you've seen what they had forecast, in fact, coming true. But what perhaps they hadn't quite anticipated was the impact of the war in Ukraine on inflation expectations that lasted too long, particularly in the UK and which has really led to wages and strikes, of course, which continue, wages rising quite fast, and then it becomes a lot more difficult to shake inflation out when you're in that situation. It's not the case in other countries. This is why we have inflation very near target in Europe, in the Eurozone. It's just over 2%. We have just over 3% inflation in the US, or around 3%, which you know is quite a good thing to have achieved despite the war in Ukraine. So you could say it's because of the interest rate increases, but actually interest rates take quite some time to have an impact. It's all because of the energy costs having come down and food prices coming down. So it's not really what the banks have done. And the worry is right now, particularly in the UK, they're having raised rates as far as we have done. And the impact only is just about starting to be felt. Are you going to end up with the economy really not recovering to any significant extent over the next couple of years? My next question was going to be about interest rates and what you think is going to happen. But I think before we get into that, the last point I want to make is that the, the report recommended that Parliament should conduct an overarching review of the Bank of England's remit, performance and operations every five years. What are your thoughts on that? Will it make a difference? There's nothing wrong with that. There are actually people who are suggesting that the remit, which is the main remit for the MPC at least, because of course there are other remits on the financial stability side, you know, and supervision, which the bank is involved in, making sure the regulations are right to ensure there is financial stability and we don't suddenly have a repeat of what happened before. 
But certainly on the MPC, the Resolution Foundation has produced this report on, on how to avoid stagnation. And one of the things they were recommending, or at least one of the papers in there was recommending, because they outsourced a lot of the, the work that was done, and this is a compilation of, of various suggestions, is that perhaps the, the 2% target should be moved up to 3%. So you don't necessarily have such high interest rates when you have a crisis of the sort mm. we just had. And also, uh, there is a lot of confusion because it's true that the Bank of England is expected to do all sorts of different things. Maybe you should simplify it. But yes, of course, climate change matters. It's one of the things that has been raised as an issue. Of how can the Bank of England sort of be on top of that and have that as a remit as well as everything else? But I mean, the truth is, of course, that it matters from financial stability viewpoint, because obviously, if there is an awful lot of lending that goes on to oil companies, say, or anything which is related to oil or to any other of the commodities that perhaps are going to be in the process of being phased out because of concerns about climate change and new environmental policies, then obviously you end up with a big problem for banks that are involved in that area. So you need to watch that. But to have that also as part of the MPC remit, which I remember seeing the letter that was written by the Chancellor and the report, the response, I think, by which was public, the response by the MPC was, yes, of course, we'll also take climate change in our MPC decision-making process. Well, I can't quite understand how interest rates and climate change can necessarily be linked now. But of course, you know, in the future, if uh, climate change issues mean that supply and demand sort of change in a different way, then obviously you have to put that into your model mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can understand it from that point of view. So yes, looking at the remit and also perhaps making it clearer, like in the US, you have to also look at employment and, and growth as part of your remit in, in the Federal Reserve. Maybe we can do that a bit more explicitly here as well. So there is a good reason for rethinking, uh, not taking the independence and inverted commas out, because obviously quite a lot of the embassy members and other members of the other committees are appointed by the Treasury and with the agreement and the sort of blessing of the Treasury Select Committee. But nevertheless, it's not an open competition from that point of view, in the sense of there are suggestions that it should be opened up and there should be a a more democratic way of choosing all these members that are there making mm -hmm. a decision. Or perhaps even abolish that and getting it all back to the Treasury. So there are all sorts of things being discussed right now, but I think reviewing the remit is, is not a bad idea. And, and being very, very open and transparent in that, I think, is, is fantastic. I, I was really encouraged to read the report. Vicky, if you were to cast your mind back over the last 12 months and summarise what's happened in the UK and US economy this year, what would you say? And then what's ahead for us in 2024? The first thing to say is that there has been a lack of understanding of what was happening through COVID. And what we have seen is that there's been a re-estimation of UK GDP was pushed up about 2%. So whereas we thought that we were still below pre-pandemic levels, it seems that's not the case. Mm, that's good news. And because of this re-evaluation, we seem to have done slightly better than the number of other countries, particularly sort of Germany and, and not the US, but some of the European countries. But of course, we mustn't forget that the European countries have been affected hugely by the war in Ukraine, particularly because they were so dependent on gas imports from Russia, which has, of course, all been cut off and they had to restructure their economies. I mean, in, in Germany, they cut energy consumption over a period by about 20%. And of course, all their energy intensive sectors have been affected and Germany is in recession right now. Or at least it looks like uh, that may be continuing this quarter as well. And the EU itself was in recession the previous quarter, or the Eurozone rather. So that's an issue for them, but also for us, because of course we export quite a lot to Europe still, despite Brexit. We've been affected because of the high 
energy prices. We import rather a lot of our energy, which is strange when you think that we have the North Sea. There's been a lot of move towards renewables, but of course, one does need to continue subsidizing them, which is more or less, which is what's going on right now, or at least anyone who wants to expand there, expect that there will be some subsidies. So we've had some offshore wind auctions, which didn't go well. Now we're offering to increase the cap, the prices that they can be charged by some of our renewables in order to attract the bids to come in so we can expand the offshore side. So that's just one example of how the UK has been affected. But of course, we've also got other areas such as nuclear that we're developing. So perhaps things won't be that bad in the future. But the reality is that the economy has been quite badly affected by the very high energy costs. And since we're talking about inflation, I mean, the interesting thing is that a year ago now, around September, October, 22% 22% inflation, perhaps, is what we're going to have in 2023. And that was because, unlike lots of other countries, we didn't move to subsidize energy fast enough. So that was a serious issue. And of course, that also led to interest rates going up in the bond market, increasing very significantly yields in the bond market. And of course, it started affecting mortgages probably earlier than has been the case in other countries. And that has been a big, big issue. So there was an adjustment of inflation expectations in the UK up. And what this did is that growth during 2023 didn't really do very much at all. In the last quarter, we saw stagnation. So overall, I think we grow by 0.5%. And we did better than we thought in the first half. We grew instead of not, but only a little. But this concern about high inflation, interest rates staying high to control this inflation is now making everyone think that next year we'll also see similar growth, nothing much at all, better than 2023. And in fact, there are some forecasts of perhaps the odd quarter of declining GDP if interest rates stay as high as they are. And the assumption, certainly by the Bank of England, is that they will stay as high as they are. The assumption by the markets is that perhaps that's not going to be the case, that interest rates may start coming down much faster than we think because inflation will start coming down. In the US, it's been a bit different. They also have interest rate increases uh, at the same level as ours at the end, even though they started a bit later. But the economy has been shielded from the very high prices of energy because it's quite self-sufficient. It doesn't import very much. They did see inflation of about 9%. That's come down to around 3 which is pretty good. What interest rates are going to do, we don't know, but I think there's a similar expectation there that rates will start coming down. So the markets at present think that they, the US, will start bringing rates down earlier than us in the UK. And what we've seen is that growth, though, has been considerably better than here, and yet inflation has come down. It's that growth thing which might make the Federal Reserve not bring interest rates down as fast as perhaps you'd think just because inflation is coming down, they fear about any resurgence that may happen and whether they've got it out of the system. So everyone's looking at core inflation, everything that doesn't include mm-hmm. energy and food. And that's been coming down actually a little bit in the US. So who knows? But that was also reflecting the exchange rates. The exchange rate here has strengthened because of that differential view that the US would start cutting rates before we do. If that is indeed the case, then those forecasts of growth will be correct that we're not going to see very much So they're happening. still quite nervous about what might happen. We're still in this kind of uncertain, slightly volatile phase, so they're not going to start dropping interest rates quite yet. But we're likely to see it happen first in the US. Yes, but of course, I spoke at the beginning about 
the fact that we've had big monetary expansion and fiscal expansion. What's going on right now is that both in the US and here and in Europe, as far as I can tell, money supply is falling. So lending is being restricted. We're not having a monetary expansion. We're having mm -hmm. the opposite. Not only are interest rates high, but we've also got quantitative tightening happening. So in other words, the central banks, instead of buying bonds and releasing more liquidity in the market, uh, in the secondary market, they're actually selling them. So they're taking money away from the market. So that's an extra tightening. So if you put all that together, then it's a serious issue about, you know, are we overdoing the tightening now? If you look at those three elements, but at least in the US, there is big expansion right now on the fiscal front with Bidenomics. I mean, we've seen a huge infrastructure spending. We've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which gives huge subsidies to businesses. So there is a lot of activity, even though they're a little bit worried that perhaps the consumer is not as confident as perhaps they, they would want to see them being. This is the policymakers looking at growth, whereas, of course, the Federal Reserve looks at inflation and worries <laughs> about that. So, But you've got these yeah. competing things. At least you've got money supply declining, dropping quite significantly here and, and in the US, and you've got tight lending conditions in Europe. But at least you've got something sustaining growth in the US, which is the fiscal side. You don't quite have that here, where, in fact, the tax take, as mm. you know, is going up. And Although there is a bit of largesse now in Europe, they've stopped quantitative easing themselves. And you know, a number of countries are, are having issues with their debt levels, but they're getting a little bit of help. So they're being eased a bit. But interest rate levels in the Eurozone are affecting some countries really badly. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the latest inflation data that you have deflation in some countries, like in the Netherlands and Belgium. That, of course, moves from month to month, depending on because you're comparing it with the previous 12 months when perhaps there were some special subsidies, then removed, then et cetera. So you've got to watch it month on month and you have a bit of variation. But to have moved to a situation where some of the worst fears are already realized in some countries in, in the Eurozone with negative inflation is quite a worry. So, mm -hmm. so perhaps interest rates will start coming down there faster than we think, although there's huge variation in inflation across Europe, particularly the countries near Russia, which have had very high inflation by comparison to the rest. And Vicky, are we headed for a recession? You know, there was a lot of talk about whether we were going into a recession or not, or have we already been in one? Is there a concern there might be a recession in Q1 or the first half of next year? Or is that now completely off the table? Oh, it's not off the table at all. It's interesting when you look at the latest data you have in the UK, we had a period when service output was declining in the summer. We still have retail sales, which are looking pretty anemic. Uh, you had manufacturing declining month after month after month. So there's been a little bit of an uptick in the last month, not in the level, but in the contraction. So it's contracting a bit less. This is on the basis of the PMI surveys, the Purchasing Managers Index, which is run every month and is pretty reliable. So still pretty stagnant growth, in other words. Uh, you have the construction sector suffering, of course, not just from the house building side, where, of course, demand is dropping, but you've also got quite a lot of the long-term engineering projects not happening, such as Houston, the Houston reconfiguration as a result of HS2, that sort of seems to have stopped, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got confidence among businesses yeah. pretty stagnant. In fact, depending on which month you look at, it's pretty poor. So, yes, some help given 
in the ocean statement to businesses for investments, but investment takes a long time to have a real impact on growth. So yes, and I think this is why people are concerned about next year, because of course you still have the tax take going up. You have interest rates so high that people on mortgages coming off current mortgages and remortgaging are going to face huge difficulties. You've got rents, of course, being really rather high, but the one positive side is that minimum wage for individuals going up, of course, but also what you've got is that finally real wages are rising in real terms. So just over 1% uh, year on year, whereas until now they were negative. And that is because the inflation rate has fallen faster than what's been happening on the wage front, where you still have wages increasing by around 8%. I'm just rounding up, uh, looking at both public and private sector. Okay. But we know unemployment is still relatively low. So we're still kind of healthy. Indeed, it's at 4.2%, which is a bit higher than the sort of record lows practically it had reached with 3.7%, 3.6% we saw at various stages over the last year or so. Uh, but yes, and that is because businesses are finding that the debt that they all accumulated, if you like, during the COVID period and beyond mm-hmm. at very low rates is now becoming much more expensive. So there is an issue as to the health, if you like, of businesses. And quite a lot of small firms, of course, are, have been in difficulty. There's a bit of help given with business rates, but not huge amount of help given to firms on the energy side. And we still have very high energy costs by comparison to the US and Europe, which businesses have to pay. And there are still staff shortages in all sorts of areas. So costs are still high for businesses. If you put all that together, it suggests that there isn't really any huge impetus for growth. And the plans ahead on public spending are pretty low. If you look at capital spending, I mentioned infrastructure before, it'll be falling in real terms over the next few years. But of course, we're going to have an election. Yeah. And who knows how things would move. But both for individuals and for corporates, I mean, corporates are still paying much higher corporation tax than was the case before and have quite all this extra cost to bear. Right. Now, thinking about the stock market, we've talked about the economy in the UK and the US. Mm. Lots going on, I think, next year. Are we feeling optimistic about the global stock market or the stock market in the UK and the US specifically? Depends very much on growth and, of course, which stocks you're looking at. I mean, what we do know, of course, is that you know, the tech sector in particular has had its ups and downs, if you like, but AI seems to be right. sort of the, <laughs> the name of the game. So anything that has sort of AI attached to it does well. Does well, absolutely. But then, you know, you see companies which are in a stock exchange and which are, you know, utilities uh, not doing particularly well for the reasons I mentioned before, such as, you know, borrowing rather a lot and and therefore finding themselves in in difficulty. Uh, Quite a lot of the regulated companies are now having problems here in the UK. Uh, In the US, of course, all the areas where the subsidies will be there and the government, of course, is supporting it, the green side and and infrastructure, probably going to do well. So I think there is a variability, but, uh, you know, the real thing to look at is the relative attractiveness in returns between bonds right now, which of course have very high yields, and stocks where there is huge amount of uncertainty. 
So you've seen periodic moves into bonds and then you see bond drought and everyone moves into stocks or in money market funds or something else. So uh, I think sentiment is pretty volatile. Uh, again, if like me and you, you just watch all these programs that tell you what's happening to various stocks, you, you know how these yeah. ups and downs occur. So it's pretty difficult to, to say anything with any certainty, except to say that obviously a country like the US, which is likely to be growing faster than Europe and the UK, and which has a much, much deeper capital market than is the case in the UK on its own or in Europe, which still hasn't managed to have a capital markets union, despite talking about this for the mm -hmm. last, whatever, 20 years, is likely to do better. Hence why here in the UK, we're trying to think of how to ease regulation to encourage more firms to do their IPOs here and be headquartered here and why the US is winning in this particular race. And they have been for a while, haven't they? I'm curious what your view is or your stance is on crypto and if that's something that you follow and or are interested in. Yes, it's a very interesting area. And of course, you know, we've all been hearing the Bitcoin recovery happening over the last uh, week or so and, and, and slightly longer. Bitcoin has sort of been steadily increasing in value, if you want to call it that, in price for a bit. But of course, what had happened earlier is that there was quite a lot of concern and the reason why, of course, Bitcoin prices fell quite significantly about the sustainability of the sector because quite a lot of the exchanges were in difficulty. And then, of course, we had the FTX problems as well. And that seems somehow rather to have now been put into history, maybe. Uh, one, we may have come around the corner and Bitcoin is, is fashionable again. The interesting thing also is that when you look at central banks' efforts to do something on the crypto side, because of course of all the concerns in relation to it being used for money laundering or for criminal activities and all that sort of stuff, by having instead a central bank digital currency, there's a lot that's been discussed. I think there is mm -hmm. huge difference still. If you look at different countries in terms of how they want this to operate and how big they want this to be and, and whether some of the issues of privacy and everything else have been ironed out and whether perhaps the original problem we all worried about, which is perhaps a bit of a dangerous area and we need to take control of it by moving in there and taking it all over more or less if I'm just simplifying the whole thing, although central banks will tell you that's not really whether we're doing it. They want to ease the transactions and reduce costs of uh, using digital currencies. And also they will be backed by sterling or whatever it is, and therefore it's much more secure and becomes a currency rather than an investment, all that sort of stuff. You start thinking, why do we need that really? And also what does it mean for banks? Because you could, like the Bank of England is suggesting, limit the amount that everybody has as a central bank digital currency deposit, if you like, that they can or allowance that they can use. And therefore it doesn't take away from what you might be depositing with a bank and allowing it to then use the deposits to lend on. But you could end up with a very different situation. And there is a lot of concern about what the data in particular of doing your transactions using a, a central bank digital currency may give to the authorities rather than so it's a privacy issue, of course, but also really the 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 position of the of the banks and whether the way in which you you make sure there is a money transmission mechanism in the economy and you do get the lending, which is absolutely essential, still happens. But whatever happens, the general view is that even if there is a digital central bank currency, what you will find is that certainly 
the likes of Bitcoin are going to be around as well. So it's not going to be exclusive, but they'll move in parallel with each other. So that's the general exploitation at present. What may materialize over the next few years in this area, who knows? It's definitely an exciting time in the world of crypto and specifically in Bitcoin, because as we know, we're waiting for the SEC in the US to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. The application was put in by BlackRock, Mm -hmm. which is the largest asset manager in the world. Uh, There are, I think, five or six other applications by like ARK Invest and others. But I think that's why we're starting to see so much movement in the price. And of course, when Bitcoin goes up, uh, it starts to pull up the rest of the crypto market like Ethereum and, and so on. So yes, it's, it's, it's really exciting, actually, from my point of view, just to see how there is an education that, that's going on now. Loads more people are opening up in terms of their understanding to what this is. So yeah, I think that will uh, just accelerate once the ETF is, is approved in the US. Vicky, thank you so much, as usual, uh, full of knowledge, full of insight. Is there a sort of final message you, you'd like to share? Anything else that we should keep our eyes and ears peeled for for next year? The main thing I would say, and the worry, is that the central banks all seem to be talking about making decisions on interest rates, on data dependency. In other words, that they look at data and then make a decision each month on what the data is selling them. My real worry is that the data is very insecure. The data gets revised, as I mentioned earlier, about UK GDP. And therefore, one needs to look a little bit more ahead and the story has to change. So now, of course, the story has up to a point changed. We move back to almost forward guidance, saying we're going to leave interest rates high for longer. Is very confusing for people. So although I wouldn't say anything really against the Bank of England or Federal Reserve policy as such on the inflation front, they get it right, they get it wrong. I would say that the ways of communicating, it's not a transparency issue. I think perhaps there is too much transparency and therefore doubting what the accuracy of various forecasts by saying, oh, we don't really know whether our models are correct. You don't do that, the central bank. You shouldn't. What you should do at least is have a sort of clarity of what it is that you're looking at each time and you can't go for data dependence if you don't trust the data if they get all revised if the whole survey in the uk for example on unemployment gets thrown out the labor force survey Mm -hmm. because you no longer trust it so you don't even have data accurate data or at least that you can judge your interest rate decisions on so one has to be very very careful so i think one of the things that the bank probably does need to do which is much more important than the group thing who do you mm-hmm. employ in it and mm-hmm. who is on the mpc is decide how they make the decisions in a way that is understandable to everyone and that also if mm-hmm. it needs to change you explain why and you also have your doubts attached to it saying perhaps this data would change maybe we'll change our mind next time yeah that sort of thing. A bit more flexibility, but also the type of transparency that really helps the market rather than the type we're having now, which is in many ways making one doubt whether the bank necessarily knows what it's doing. Which is that fair? Thank you, Vicky. Very wise words. And no doubt you'll be joining us soon at some point next year. So thanks again. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.